Good morning. So as was uh, mentioned in the email, the plan is I'll continue working through the book of James. Um, we'll trade off as, as my dad is working through Second Chronicles. Um, I'm not going to go backwards in the book to recover chapter 1. Instead, as we move forward, we'll, we'll look back to recapture some of the context of the book of James, especially as it's relevant to each one of the passages. So what I want to do is we'll start just by reading, reading the text, and then, then we'll look backwards to see and give some color to what James is saying. The beginning of James chapter 2 is about partiality. It's not, it's not complicated in terms of what we're called to. But I think we do have to consider the context of James and all of, all of the background he's pulling in before we begin thinking about this passage in terms of our own modern discussion on social justice and, and all of the issues that come along with that. So if you would, let's read, and we'll read beginning in uh, chapter 1, verse 26. James writes this, If anyone thinks himself to be religious, and yet does not bridle his tongue, but deceives his own heart, this man's religion is worthless. This is pure and undefiled religion in the sight of our God and Father, to visit orphans and widows in their distress, and to keep oneself unstained by the world. My brothers, do not hold the faith in our Lord Jesus Christ, the glory, with an attitude of personal favoritism. For if a man comes into the synagogue with a gold ring and dressed in fine clothes, and there also comes in a poor man in filthy clothes, and you look upon the one who's wearing bright clothes and you say, and you say sit here in a good place, and say to the poor man, you stand over there or sit down by my footstool, have you not made judgments among yourselves and become judgments with evil reasons? Listen, my beloved brethren, did not God choose the poor of this world to be rich in faith and heirs of the kingdom which he promised to those who love him? But you have dishonored the poor man. Is, not, is it not the rich who oppress you and they themselves drag you into judgment? But they do not blaspheme, do they not blaspheme the good name which, by which you have been called? If, however, you are fulfilling the law of the king, according to the scripture, you shall love your neighbor as yourself, you are doing well. But if you show partiality, you are committing sin and are convicted by the law as transgressors. For whoever keeps the whole law and yet stumbles in one point, he has become guilty of all. For he who said, do not commit adultery, also said, do not commit murder. Now, if you do not commit adultery, but you do commit murder, you have become a transgressor of the law. So speak and so act as those who are to be judged by the law of liberty. For judgment will be merciless to the one who has shown no mercy. Mercy boasts over judgment." If you would pray with me. Father, as we consider what James has to say, Lord, we pray that you would give us ears to hear your word, give us eyes to see the fullness of what you call us to. Lord, we want to be kings made in your image to judge righteously and holy. 
So, Lord, we pray that you would do that today. Transform us as we meet in your presence. We pray these things in the name of our Savior, Jesus. Amen. So, if you would, um, before working through this text, I want to go back to verse 1. And I think it's important to look at what James is doing and the allusions that he brings in and how they color this, this particular text. So, we're going to start with an allusion that looks back to, to Genesis, and it connects in our major, um, the, the major character that we're to compare this, this book to also in the, in the person of Job's, Job. So James chapter 1, James, a bondservant of God. And just in, in that, if you remember, if you studied this book before, you might remember that the name James is really the name Jacob. They're not different. And so, if you look in the Greek, it's Yaakov. It's been, it's been changed by pronunciation over time, but it is the name Jacob. And so, as you, as you think about what he says here, it casts a new light when you say Jacob, a bondservant of God and of the Lord Jesus Christ to the twelve tribes. So, think about that. Jacob writing to the twelve tribes, to his twelve sons now grown up. And it brings in for us the context of who Jacob was, all that he learned throughout his life. If you've been following the reading plan, it, it actually melds perfectly with James. We've covered most of Genesis now, the book of Job and, and Matthew, as well as Proverbs. And those four books provide the background that we need for understanding the context of James. So thinking about Jacob, as you move through the book of Genesis you move through lessons that God is teaching his people. This is not, not new, but you can think about it. In the beginning, God teaches Adam, and he teaches him as a priest. He teaches him to wait and to be patient, and Adam fails. And then he teaches Cain and Abel, and they have brotherly conflict, and they fail. And then he teaches through the person of Noah about the sin of mixing in the world, and there's failure, there's sin. And as you move through the rest of the book of Genesis, these patterns repeat so that Abraham has to wait patiently on the Lord. But then as you move into the story of Jacob, the, the story is about brotherly conflict. There is an, an intensity of wrestling that occurs in the story of Jacob. And of course, as you move to the end of Genesis, Joseph again takes up the discourse of how to interact rightly with the rest of the world. So in the book of James, we inherit this this background of Jacob. And the question in the life of Jacob is, how do, you, how do you wrestle brother to brother? And all through Jacob's life, that's what he's doing. He's wrestling with his dad. He's wrestling with Esau. He's wrestling with Laban. And then we discover, Jacob discovers, that throughout all of that, the person that he's wrestling with is God. And so he meets God at Peniel, and he says, I'm going to name it Peniel because I've seen God face to face, and yet I live. And there he wrestles with God, and he hangs on to hold on for a blessing. James is going to pick up this idea. I think we can see it in the background, an illusion here. And particularly what we want to notice out of that is that in the life of Jacob, God is teaching him how to rule righteously. He's teaching them how to wrestle. Between, between kings, that's, that's, that's the lesson they need to learn, how to interact with their brothers and how to do it wisely. And so the wisdom literature corresponds to this, this time period where you learn 
rightly how to judge others and how to wrestle fairly and righteously. And you think about James, that's exactly what's going on. They're in the midst of trouble, just like Jacob. It seems like trial after trial. And the subject of the book of James is then all of the interactions that occur within the space of that trouble. So how, how you pick up hearing and speaking and anger within the context of trial and trouble. Because that's when the temptation to lash out and to, to wrestle unrighteously comes to the forefront. And in our section today, you'll notice that the law that he refers to, he calls it the law of the king, the royal law. And it harkens back to this. When we think about God's kingdom and he's training us up to be kings, to rule righteously and fairly, to, to rule justly, James is pointing out that that is mutually exclusive with the idea of partiality. They cannot go together. Recognize, first of all, that in the midst of trouble, God is teaching us wisdom. He is the one wrestling with us. Job learned that same lesson, and he's in a, the major example of the book of James. He also falls under trouble, and he's wrestling. Job is a king, and he's learning by the end of the book that he indeed is also wrestling with God. Both Job and Jacob, they hang on and they receive a blessing. And so we're called to this text, how are we going to wrestle? Especially as trouble and trial comes upon the church, how are we going to wrestle? How are we going to conduct ourselves as kings? So hold on to that thought as we look through this text, and we'll, we'll come back to it a couple of times. But I wanted to bring in that context for us because it, it colors what James is doing. He's teaching us wisdom in the midst of trouble. And that is how God raises up kings. He raises us to make righteous, good judgments. And so James, or Jacob, a bondservant of God and of the Lord Jesus Christ, writes to the 12 tribes who are dispersed abroad. And you can think through the context, the history of all of the times that the nation of Israel has been displaced and dispersed. Immediately, even with Jacob, they're dispersed to Egypt. And then as you move on through the history, they're cast out. They're cast out of the land again and again. And when we come to our present context, there's a new dispersion, which we're going to get to that has a, a local context as well. So with that background in mind, James is teaching us this is what it means to be a king. This is pure and undefiled religion, to take care of, to visit orphans and widows in their distress, to keep oneself unstained by the world. And so you just think about the vocation of kings, to live like a king. It doesn't mean to live in wealth and honor and respect. Instead, God's call to the king is to take care of the poor and the needy, to provide for the orphan and the widow, to be unstained by the world's way of thinking, which reverses those two things. You make the king be the, the object of splendor and majesty instead of the one that, that's there to provide justice and mercy for those that need it. So James says, in the midst of your trouble, remember this. This is what true religion is. Watch out for your tongue. Provide for the orphan and the widow. Be unstained by the world. This is how to be a righteous king. So in chapter 2, he begins, my brothers. 
We won't look through all of them, but there's, there's 17 references to brothers in the book of James. And he uses them in part to mark out sections in the book. So there's, there's, depending on how you count it, 12 or 13 admonitions to my brothers, which again harkens back to Jacob writing to the 12 tribes, the 12 brothers. My brothers, do not hold your faith in the Lord Jesus Christ. And just there, as he writes to the brothers, he says, and there's, this can be taken one of two ways. Do not hold your faith, so our faith, in the Lord Jesus Christ, or do not hold the faith of the Lord Jesus Christ. And either way is applicable in this context. We can think about how Jesus lived as a faithful and righteous king, and it's mutually exclusive with partiality, with showing distinctions. And as you think through the book of Matthew, which we just read, that's evident throughout his life. He's constantly talking about those who prey on the poor and the weak and the needy, those who don't judge fairly and righteously. And so he says, consider this, do not, you cannot hold either your faith or the faith of the Lord Jesus Christ with this kind of attitude. They cannot coexist. And James's language is going to become even stronger as he moves through, through this book and even through our passage today. But then he adds, he adds one word. My translation says, My brothers, do not hold your faith in our glorious Lord Jesus Christ. He adds the word glory. It can be written here as a, as a descriptive the adjective of our Lord Jesus Christ, or as, as when I read the passage the first time, as, as a noun, the glory. They make you think of two different things, right? Our Lord Jesus Christ is glorious, but he also is the glory. And the reason this is important is because it brings forefront to the center of our minds that our pursuit, the glory which we're seeking, is his glory, and the reason that partiality, that favoritism and distinctions exist is because we seek our own glory. And so James wants us to, to think about this. The righteous king sets his eyes on the glory, the glory of God. And when you do that, unrighteous speech, unrighteous anger, partiality, they all begin to fade away because our mind and our eyes are fixed on what Jesus is doing. So he says, My brothers, do not hold your faith in our glorious Lord Jesus Christ with an attitude of personal favoritism. And before moving on to the example, I just want to look at that, that word, personal favoritism. It's a, a compound of words that means that you accept or take face. The word is face. You're looking at the face. So the Old Testament Hebrew word for favoritism or partiality means that you look intently at the face. And I, I think we all understand what that means. You're, you're, looking, you're looking at the face of somebody and making a judgment, particularly in this context when you're thinking about rich and poor and the divisions that exist between them. But if we look back in chapter 1, if you remember a few weeks ago, we talked about the end of that chapter and how James is calling us to be not just hearers of the word, but doers. And he uses this word face there as well. He says, if anyone is a hearer of the word and not a doer, he's like a man who looks at his Genesis face in a mirror. 
And once he's looked at himself and gone away, he immediately has forgotten what kind of person he is. And if you recall, he said that that means looking into God's word to find out what we are. God has given us birth by his word. He's told us who we are in his word, in the perfect law, the royal law, the law of liberty. And when we fail to do, we walk away from that word, walk away from the perfect law, forgetting who we are in Christ, forgetting our face. And in chapter 2, when you're showing personal favoritism, when, you, when you're dividing unrighteously, it's because we're looking intently at face, but they're talking about two different faces. So the Genesis face, the face of who God made us to be, written in his word, we bear his image, that's the face that we ought to consider when looking at one another. Proverbs 22 says that rich and poor share a common bond. The Lord is the maker of them all. We're stamped with, with his image. And so staring intently at the face, the outward expression, is what leads to this sin that James is discussing. And so then he gives an example. If a man comes into your synagogue, is the word, if a man comes into your synagogue with a gold ring and dressed in fine clothes, and there also comes in a poor man in filthy clothes, and you look upon, so you're looking at the face, you're looking on the one who's wearing bright clothes and say, you sit here in a good place, and you say to the poor man, you stand over there or sit down by my footstool, you have made judgments among yourselves and you have become judges with evil reasonings. So you look, at, you look at somebody coming into the synagogue and you say they've got bright clothes on. That's why I always wear drab clothes. Um, maybe there's a lot of other reasons for that. But you look at them and they have the, the bright, bright white clothes of a rich man, the gold ring on it, and immediately there's the temptation to make unrighteous judgments. You've made distinctions among yourselves and become judges with evil, evil reasonings. I think we're all familiar with this, this idea. And there is a temptation to swing to the left or to the right on making righteous judgments within the people of God, specifically. So we're going to think about that, but I want to provide a little more context. So if you would, turn with me to Acts chapter 8. Recall that Jacob is writing to the 12 tribes who are dispersed. In Acts chapter 8, Stephen has just been put to death. And this is one of two dispersions that happen in the New Testament. So the dispersion could be referring to either one. But I think based on what comes next, there's at least a lot of correlation with Acts chapter 8. In Acts chapter 8, we read this. And Saul was in hearty agreement with putting Stephen to death. And on that day, a great persecution arose against the church in Jerusalem, and they were all scattered. They were dispersed throughout the regions of Judea and Samaria, except the apostles. And some devout men buried Stephen and made loud lamentation over him. But Saul began ravaging the church, entering house after house, 
and dragging off men and women, he would put them in prison. And so the church, this new foundling church, the people of God are dispersed. This, this would put it very early in the book of Acts when the people still meet in synagogues. They're still meeting there. There's a division between Hellenistic Jews and the Hebrews that occurs in Acts chapter 6. And that's why Stephen was appointed as, as a minister in the church to serve the widows that weren't being served. And then you fast forward two chapters and Stephen is put on trial and he's murdered and the church is dispersed abroad. So with all that in mind, James is saying, consider. True religion means caring for the orphans and the widows. True religion is not showing distinction, not making unrighteous judgments within your newfound trouble. And this is particularly poignant when you consider that the church is under trial. So the temptation to make unrighteous judgments is strengthened when you're not in a position of comfort. At 3M in the, the last few weeks, there was some layoffs in the, uh, in the area I'm working in. So there was a, a cut of 10%. And what you notice is when that's announced, people's attitudes begin to shift. The, the kinds of words that they say shift. There's a, a type of um, fawning that begins to those that are perceived to hold the power of decision. And it's this kind of, of thought that I think is taking place here. When there's trouble, and there's an opportunity to lessen your trouble by, by fawning over the one that has the power to remove it, the rich and the wealthy, the ones that, as we find out in just a minute, are themselves dragging you into court. There's a temptation then to make that distinction, and it's much stronger than when everybody is wealthy and content and happy. But when there's trouble, when there's trouble, that's when this becomes all too apparent. So he says in verse 5, this is what's happening. Now listen, my beloved brethren. Did not God choose the poor of this world to be rich in faith and heirs of the kingdom which he promised to those who love him? So in talking about this problem, the first thing James says is this doesn't match up with who God is. God has chosen the poor. And we see that through the book of Matthew. James references it constantly. Matthew chapter 5, think about the poor in spirit. Blessed are the poor in spirit, for they inherit the kingdom of heaven. So in the midst of trouble, if you want wisdom, if you want to grow in kingly righteous judgment... Do not judge by face. Do not look intently upon the face because God does not. God chose the poor of this world to be heirs of the kingdom which he promised to those who love him. That's true from Genesis to Revelation. God has a special concern for the poor. And so if we claim to hold on to the faith of our Lord Jesus Christ, the glory and yet do not fall in line with the way that God thinks. By the end of this chapter, James is going to say that kind of faith is no faith at all. It's worthless. That religion is worthless because it does nothing. It has no effect. It's not rooted in truth. 
And remember, the, the readership of James is in trouble. And so to obey this means that they have to trust God, that God is the one that will bring justice, that God is the one that, that will bring them through this trial of the men and women being dragged off to courts, that he will, he will be the one that sets them free, that brings them liberty. It means that, that they have to let go of security. They cannot hold it with a tight fist. And I think that that, that brings this idea of favoritism to a, a level that we can begin to understand. Because it's hard. It's hard to do that in the middle of trouble when you see a way out. And God says, not that way. Endure. Endure like Job. Don't take that avenue. Remember who you're wrestling with. You're not wrestling with those that brought you to court. At the end of the day, you are wrestling with God. And he is teaching what wisdom is. So he gives a second reason in verse 6. But you have dishonored the poor man. Is it not the rich who oppress you and personally drag you into judgment? So if you think about Acts chapter 8, that's exactly what's happening. They've been dispersed. And Saul, as, as well as other Judaizers, are going after the people of God. They're dragging them off into court, the men and women. They're putting them under the tribunal. And if you think about what happened to Stephen, they should be afraid. Stephen went to that council. He went under the tribunal. There was liars who attacked him. And ultimately, he was stoned and put to death. And so this is now a church that's full of orphans and widows. It's full of the poor and the needy. But at the same time, it's full of people that are afraid because it's ongoing. And so his second reason here is think about who you are, you are fawning under, who you're trying to gratify. Is it not the same ones who are dragging you into that judgment seat? Do they not blaspheme the good name by which you have been called? And that is the context of Acts chapter 8. Saul, before being transformed, is blaspheming God's name. He's, t he's taking it and he's trampling it underfoot. He's taking all those who call upon that name and bringing them before the court to bring them on trial and put them to death. But James says, in the midst of that kind of trouble, when you're dividing, when you're losing families and your life is on the line, do this, fulfill the law of the king. Fulfill the law of the king, which according to scripture says, you shall love your neighbor as yourself. If you do this, you are doing well. Jesus, he brings up this law frequently. We read about it in Matthew chapter 19 when uh, he tells it to the rich young ruler. Notice again that this is the law to the kings, not just from the king. This is the law given to kings. The rich young ruler fails to hear and to be able to obey this law, the law of loving your neighbors, be, neighbor, because Jesus says, if, if you want to obey, this is what you must do. Give up everything. Give it to the poor and follow me. And yet the, that rich young ruler went away sad because he was rich. If you would turn with me to Deuteronomy 17. 
So before we come back and look at the context of that quotation out of Leviticus, I want to read this law, which is particular to kings. So Deuteronomy 17, he's writing and he's talking about the judgment that is given to priests, but then he enters on this topic of when you come into the land and a king is given. When the judgment is given to kings, because then you'll have a king, this is what you need to remember. So verse 14 of Deuteronomy 17. When you enter the land which Yahweh your God gives you, and you possess it and live in it, and you say, I will set a king over me, like all the nations who are around me, you shall surely set a king over you whom Yahweh your God chooses. One from among your countrymen you shall set as king over yourselves. You may not put a foreigner over yourself who is not your countryman. Moreover, he shall not multiply horses for himself, nor shall he cause the people to return to Egypt to multiply horses. Since Yahweh has said to you, you shall never again return that way. Neither shall he multiply wives for himself, lest his heart turn away, nor shall he greatly multiply silver and gold for himself. And it shall come about when he sits on the throne of his kingdom, he shall write for himself a copy of this law on a scroll in the presence of the Levitical priests. And it shall be with him, and he shall read it all the days of his life, that he may learn to fear Yahweh his God by carefully observing all the words of this law and these statutes." that his heart may not be lifted up above his countrymen, and that he may not turn aside from the commandment to the right or to the left, in order that he and his sons may continue long in his kingdom in the midst of Israel. So James adds this epithet to the law of Leviticus, you shall love your neighbor for yourself as yourself. He says this is the law of the king, or the law by the king. It can be either again. Jesus is the one that, that gives this law, but the royal law, the one that kings had to remember, is this. You are not allowed, even though you may be able to accomplish it by the power that God has given you, you are not allowed to multiply wives, to multiply horses or silver or gold for yourself. The reason at the end of the passage is so that your heart will not be lifted up against your brethren. When God lifts us up as kings, there can be a temptation in this position to exalt ourselves. And so God gives this law, the law for the king. Do not multiply wives, horses, silver, or gold, so that your heart may not be lifted up against your brethren. But within that, there's a specific reason given in verse 16 about multiplying horses. He shall not multiply horses for himself, nor shall he cause the people to return to Egypt to multiply horses, since Yahweh has said, you shall never again return that way. So think about, think about what God is asking. He's asking the king, you, you can't collect an army of horses. How is it, though, that that's related to returning to Egypt? The, the two don't seem to go together. It, it could be that what's in mind is you're raising up an army to go back and take Egypt, but I, I think it's a little more subtle than that. When the king multiplies horses, he's doing so 
as, as an oppressor, as a tax on the people. He's raising himself up, and the return to Egypt is not talking about returning physically to Egypt. It's talking about the king making himself into the kind of king that Pharaoh was, where he subjects the people to slavery. And this is, this is the idea behind the partiality shown to the rich. You're subjecting yourself to slavery. By fawning to the rich, by seeking their, the, the privilege and the power that comes from their hand, or seeking, seeking what can only come from God. And this is the, the nature of the rich-poor distinction, the partiality, and that you're looking for, for favor. And so God says the law of the king is this. You can sum it up. Love your neighbor as yourself. That means your heart may not be lifted up against your brother, and even as king... Love your neighbor as yourself. Do not multiply wives, horses, silver, or gold. If you're fulfilling this, the law of the king, you shall love your neighbor as yourself. You do well. If you would turn, turn back to Leviticus 19, and we'll take up the quotation directly. Leviticus 19, verse 15. You shall do no injustice in judgment. You shall not be partial to the poor, nor defer to the great. For, but you are to judge your neighbor fairly, righteously. You shall not go about as a slanderer among your people, and you are not to act against the life of your neighbor. I am Yahweh. You shall not hate your fellow countrymen in your heart, you may surely reprove your neighbor, but you shall not incur sin because of him. You shall not take vengeance nor bear any grudge against the sons of your people, but you shall love your neighbor as yourself. I am Yahweh. And so embedded in this summary, which Jesus says, this is the second greatest commandment. You shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength, and you shall love your neighbor as yourself. Embedded within this is how you judge your neighbor. Now notice here in the context we're reminded that the question is not whether you judge your neighbor because Moses writes, you may surely reprove your neighbor, but you shall not incur sin because of him. The question is on what basis do you judge? When elevated to the status of king and given the right of rule, judgment is a requirement, ultimately. And we'll get into the nuances of that later on in James because he, he speaks out pretty strongly against judgment. But here in the context of this law, love your neighbor as yourself. You may judge your, you may, you may reprove your neighbor. And we know from other scriptures that even you must reprove your neighbor. But what standard of judgment do we judge by? Do we reprove by? And in James chapter 2, that standard is the face. You judge by the face. In James chapter 1, the standard is the Word of God. So he tells us that we are birthed by the Word of God, 
it oozes out of our pores. It, it describes to us who we are. And so it is that standard by which we judge. You shall do no injustice in judgment. You shall give no partiality to the rich or the poor. So back to James, James chapter 2. We have this, this problem that's going on among, among the church in this early time period. They're, they're dispersed, they're in trouble, and they're, they're looking upon paying special attention to the ones that can show them favor and judgment. They're being brought into the courts, and so the temptation is strong, and yet James says, fulfill this law, the law of the king. You shall love your neighbor as yourself. If you do this, you are doing well. But if you show partiality, if you accept face, if you, if you look intently upon the face, you're committing sin and you're convicted by the law as transgressors. For whoever keeps the whole law and yet stumbles in one point, he has become guilty of all. So consider this. James says we cannot unrighteously judge one another. When, when we're wrestling and there's trouble... We reprove only, we look only through the lens of the royal law, the perfect law, the law of liberty. So he's going to come back to that description, the law of liberty, here in just a couple verses. Remember that the problem with partiality is it brings us back to Egypt, where you have a king, you're set in slavery under that king, and so it's opposed, directly opposed, to the law given even at Mount Sinai, which was a law of liberty. The people were freed, they're brought to the mountain, and they're given a law of freedom, no longer as slaves, but now set free as the children of God. And the command is, don't look back, don't ever go back. When you have a king, don't return to Egypt. Don't go back to a condition of slavery again. Instead, this law of liberty is here as freed children of God. And under this law, we're set free to fulfill the law of the king, to love your neighbor as yourself. He says, if you do this, you're doing well, but if you show partiality, that sin of partiality is in contradiction to the law, and if you just commit this one sin where you're afraid for your life, and yet you defer to the rich. You're guilty of the whole law. That one sin, done out of fear, out of lust, it doesn't matter. If you commit one sin, you're guilty of the whole law. And he gives an example which, when I, when I was reading this this week, it seems extreme. We're talking about showing favoritism, something, something that's a plague on mankind and has been for thousands of years. And yet the examples, he says, is he who said do not commit adultery also said do not commit murder. If you don't commit adultery but you do commit murder, you have become a transgressor of the law. This has to be related to partiality. They seem like they're on two different levels. He who said, do not commit adultery, also said, do not commit murder. In the people that James is writing to, we'll find by the time we get to chapter 4 that there is violence. We don't know to what extent can be violence of the tongue. He's going to address that. But there may be physical violence as well. 
Think about the, the early church in a state of turmoil and uh, how Stephen ended up before the tribunal. There was an, an act of violence. There was slander committed against him. The synagogue of the freedmen took up a debate with Stephen and yet they couldn't win because he spoke with the power of the Spirit. And so they lied. They brought false, false witness about him and took him before the tribunal and he was dragged into the council and then stoned to death. So murder is on the table because that is happening in the church. But I think we can also consider, consider this more subtly. We know what, what Jesus says about adultery and murder in Matthew chapter 5. He who even looks with lust upon a woman has committed adultery already in his heart, and he who says to his brother, you fool, has also committed murder. And so it operates here on multiple planes. But consider, consider the early church, and even, even before that, when brotherly conflict comes up, there can be a, an idea of holiness, a sense of piousness, in which we're not committed adultery, whether you think of adultery as the physical sin or the spiritual sin of mixing, mixing theology, mixing with the wrong kind of people. You say, well, we're not guilty of that. We're being pure. We're holy. And yet you commit murder. Murder here in this context is showing partiality. It is a form of murder of the poor in which you hate your fellow countrymen. You hate your brother. You deny to him justice. You deny to him mercy. And so it's murder. And so think about the church in, in our day, in our context. As many who would say, well, in order to keep the church pure, this is what we must do. But we have to balance that with what God calls us to in our righteous judgment of one another, our relationships as brothers before the Lord, our King Jesus. So James says, if you do just this one thing, if you... Do not commit adultery, but you do commit murder. You have become a transgressor of the law. You're guilty. And that guilt is going to intensify through the book of James. So for, for James, this sin, this is fundamental to being a follower of Christ. It's fundamental to true religion. When you make false judgments among yourself, false distinctions that aren't based on God's word, it's a form of fratricide. So think about, uh, I can give one example here that comes from the context of the life of Jacob. We just read about it this week with Simeon and Levi. They, uh, they covenanted the sons of Hamor as their brothers, and they were angry with them because they committed adultery. And yet the response was murder. So Simeon and Levi could walk away saying, we're holy, we're righteous, we're not adulterers, and yet they were murderers, guilty of the whole law. Looking at the face is equivalent to that. So speak and so act as those who are to be judged by the law of liberty, for judgment will be merciless to the one who has shown no mercy. Mercy boasts over judgment. Throughout this passage, the question on the table is judging. So they're being brought before the courts for judgment. They're judging one another uh, 
They're making distinctions or judgments based on their status and wealth. And I, I think that it's right to extend this passage to all kinds of other areas of life where we show partiality based on our opinion or who can bring us, um, who can bring us what we want. But the question is, how do we judge? And so I would bring your attention back to James chapter 1. Jacob, a bondservant of God and of the Lord Jesus Christ, to the twelve tribes who are dispersed abroad, greetings. Consider it all joy, my brothers, when you encounter various trials, knowing that the testing of your faith produces endurance, and let endurance have its perfecting result, that you may be perfect and complete, lacking in nothing. But if any of you lack wisdom, let him ask of God who gives to all men generously without reproach, and it will be given to him, but let him ask in faith without judging. And so that judging in verse 6 is related to judging of God's position of you in trial, judging of God's word, but also judgment of your brothers, unrighteous judgment of your brothers. So consider the context of Job. Job is in suffering, he's under trial, and his brothers, his friends, bring him before, bring to him, they, they bring him under trial as well, under a courtroom judgment. And they say, look at your condition. Because you're poor, because you're destitute, because God has taken away everything from you, you must be a sinner despised by God. But they're judging based on face. They're looking intently at the face. And at the end of that book, as Job enters and speaks with the whirling glory cloud of God, God says to the three friends, you have not spoken rightly of me as Job has. If any of you lacks wisdom, let him ask of God who gives to all men generously without reproach, and it will be given to him, but let him ask in faith without judgment. For the one who judges is like the surf of the sea, driven and tossed by the wind, but let not that man expect that he will receive anything from the Lord, being double-minded and unstable in all his ways. But let the brother of humble circumstances glory in his high position, and let the rich man glory in his humiliation. Because like flowering grass, he will pass away. For the sun rises with the scorching wind and withers the grass, and its flower falls off, and the beauty of its appearance is destroyed. So too, the rich man in the midst of his pursuits will fade away. So James is bringing back in this introduction of looking for wisdom in the midst of trial, and there's a brother of humble circumstances and a brother that's rich. And he says, let the brother of humble circumstances glory in his exaltation. Jesus is lifting him up to the position of king. God is the one who chooses the poor of this world to be heirs of the kingdom of heaven. Let the rich man glory in his bringing down and God bringing him down in humiliation, knowing that like the flowering grass, the riches will pass away. At the root, James is saying, we are people birthed by the Word. The Word is what remains and endures. It lasts through every trial, and through that trial, the Word gives birth into us. It produces in us fruit of kingship. And so, let the status of this world, let the judgments, the distinction of this world fall away. 
We cannot judge based on those items, whether it's money, whether it's race, whether it's education, it does not matter. Because we are people birthed God by God's word. When the sun rises with the scorching wind and withers the grass, its flower will fall off and it's destroyed. All of those things will fade away. So we need to learn the lesson of Jacob and Job. We need to learn to judge righteously. And it may not be very difficult right now, although this is a, a big discussion in our culture. When there's trouble, that difficulty will grow. So we need to be prepared, not moving to the left or to the right, judging always only by the standard of God's word, never superseding it and never doing less than it. This is what God calls us to as kings under our high king, Jesus. If you would, let's pray. Father, we come to you, and Lord, even in this word, which is clear, it's, it's as old as the ages, we know as Peter discovered that you're not a God who's a respecter of persons, and we thank you for it. We thank you that you didn't divide us based on any status, no status that, that this world describes but instead you have lifted us up. You've saved us, purified us, made us righteous, given us birth through the enduring and remaining word. And Lord, we pray that we would seek our life in that word. Lord, we pray that we would be righteous in making judgments by that enduring word. Help us to know it frontwards and backwards, to be able to look in it and find the description of who we are and help us to love one another to love those that are different from us in all kinds of ways. Lord, help us not to be confused by the wranglings of this world, by how they take and turn this law of loving your neighbor as yourself, of not deferring to the rich and have moved it from left to right so that now there's, there's even new partiality and, and judgment that exists. Lord, we want to walk by the standard of your word to make distinctions according to what's right and holy. And so we pray that you would build that in us as your children, children of the King. Pray these things in the name of our Savior Jesus. Amen.